I trust in my gut. That's something I, I strongly believe in is to ultimately at the end of the day, trust your instincts. And I trusted it. I told myself I wouldn't question it again after that. And I have it. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Vecina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Welcome everyone to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus and today I'll be your host. For this episode, we welcome Kevin Craig as our guest. Kevin is in his final year of undergrad at Seton Hall studying physics with the intent to go into bioengineering. He's held internship positions as a dental assistant and a radiology technician assistant, which has included duties such as maintaining CT machinery and assisting with orthodontic and periodontic procedures. He also works on the executive board for associations on campus, like the Student Alumni Association and the Society of Physics Students. In his free time, he is the president of Seton Hall's gaming sector, which provides students a community to get together and play virtual and tabletop games. It is December right now, and I bet a lot of students are deciding what major they want to enroll as. So can you walk people through your process into choosing your major and what made you decide to major in physics? I, I decided what I wanted to major in pretty early on, actually. I decided my senior year in high school, maybe a little bit sooner than that, maybe my junior year. But largely what went into my decision to continue that major once I was here at Seton Hall, because I did question on changing it for a little bit, was A, how I felt in the classes, but largely how I felt those classes served me following graduation. So I chose physics because, of course, I'd love to go to engineering. That's a huge passion of mine, working with my hands, being able to physically assist others with something I make or designed. From that, you know, obviously Seton Hall doesn't offer a engineering program directly. So I figured the next best thing that would serve me would be physics. With that, I can, you know, of course, go into a master's of engineering or go right into the field and do a lot of things that an engineer would do uh, traditionally. So, you know, that, that's largely what went to my, my thoughts with that. It's funny that you talked about the classes and going to Seton Hall helping you decide your major, because one of my other questions that I had was that physics is very hard. I have a lot of friends who do physics, and they all complain about it all the time. And have there been any classes that have made you want to quit the major entirely? How did you work through those classes? Honestly, I wouldn't say that there are any classes that within my program, uh, made me want to quit my major. There were incredibly difficult classes that I've taken. Some of those being, you know, electricity and magnetism or uh, quantum mechanics. Those are probably the hardest that I've ever taken or will take. And that's largely because of the concepts that are involved and the amount of math. There's the sheer amount of math I have to do for those classes. But the way I kind of got through those difficult courses and kind of staying strong with my major was honestly, I just spaced it out as, as much as I possibly could. So an example is in quantum mechanics, sometimes one question would literally take four or five pages to do just one question. So I'd take it just half page at a time, get to a certain point, stop, take a break, come back later. So I also know that a lot of freshmen who are in college, they're, they're ending their first semester and a lot of them might be doubting their major because of how hard it is. So when you encounter a hard class, how do you know if you're meant to be in the field that you're going into versus 
oh, this is, we probably should quit. This is too hard. How do you know? I would personally say never let the difficulty of something be what deters you. If you just let a difficult act or action or whatever it may be, be the limiting factor, you'll never truly get to the goals that you set yourself to. Because there'll always be something very difficult. There'll always be that next hurdle that you won't want to push through, but you have to. So I wouldn't let difficulty deter you. What I would consider is if you genuinely aren't enjoying what you're doing, if it doesn't make you happy, if you don't see a purpose in it, and you don't feel like it's going to get you to the places that you want to be in your life in the future following graduation or even just next year, that's when I would start to consider changing your major or changing your course of action. That's a really interesting point because some people might have other passions that don't necessarily make a lot of money historically. So they go Mm -hmm. into these STEM fields because it will. So how do you balance not wanting to go into your passions because it's financially unstable? I mean, with this is too hard, I shouldn't be breaking my back over this. That's a great question. So something I had to learn early on, because I have a lot of passions, obviously, is that not all hobbies and passions are something you can feasibly do for a career. I apprenticed as a blacksmith and a carpenter. I could have done both of those as a career. I did that for four or five years, but I chose to come to college and further my degree because I figured I can do more with my life than that. It's a passion. I still do it all the time, but you know, that's a conclusion I had to come to. So that's really just a question that you have to ask yourself. Is my passion something I can make into a feasible career to support myself? If not, then it's a hobby and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with having hobbies. You need them. You need to enjoy your life. But then you need to consider what career you would enjoy doing. Not what job, what career. Another thing that really caught my attention was earlier in the interview, you were talking about, when we were talking about your experience in choosing physics, you were talking about still deciding it while you were at Seton Hall. And a lot of people try to get what major they want squared away before they even step foot into college. So why did you decide to have that questioning process during college when you were already spending money on your education versus before while so the, in terms of the emotion, it was a lot. I remember it was my freshman year, very vividly remembers the second semester of freshman year over winter break, that sort of time period. Actually, right after, <clears throat> right after finals, like going into winter break up to spring semester, a lot of emotion, a lot of, of thought behind, is this really what I want to do? Is this what will make me happy and what will lend me to the career I want to get to? And that took a lot just to sit down and even even allow myself to kind of register that that is a question that I have for myself and say that that's okay that I'm questioning it. Yeah, I know I'm spending a lot of money here at college, whether you have a scholarship or don't, whatever the case, you're still spending a lot and it's a lot of time and effort. And I recognize that and you have to say that's okay to question it sometimes. As long as at the end of the day, you do what you're going to do is best for you, then I think that's the okay thing to to question. So in terms of emotion, that, that's how I got there. As far as I think you said, like, how did I process the, like, how did I come to the conclusion? Mm-hmm. That took a lot more. I spoke to several professors that I was very close with at the time, my advisors, a few of them, like Victor, 
Victor Gomez. I spoke to him. I spoke to my academic advisor as well. And then some very close friends of mine, uh, as well as my parents, of course. I spoke to all of them, got their opinions, said, hey, you know, I'm kind of questioning if this is really what I want to do. How do I go through this? What should I consider? What are things that I should uh, look at internally when I'm asking myself this? Like, is this what I want to do? And I almost transferred, in fact, because, you know, for a moment I said, okay, I don't think this is it. I spoke to some people about it. And I remember my father telling me, if this isn't what you want to do, you don't need to decide it now. Finish out the year, see how you feel. Because emotions sometimes get overwhelming. You get scared and you make a decision based on that overwhelmed feeling. Try to ride that feeling out if you have the time and see how you feel afterwards. Then look back, look at that decision one more time, then make your choice, which is exactly what I did. I stayed through the rest of the semester for the spring, finished my freshman year, and obviously I'm still here and I, I ended up making the decision of, yeah, this is, this is it, this is what I wanna do. So what made you decide to not transfer? Like I said, largely it was a combination of talking to everybody, but ultimately I think it's that, you know, physics, after my freshman year, it felt right. That felt like, I don't know how to explain it otherwise than it just felt right. Like it made sense in my heart and in my head to continue doing physics. Not for anything like, oh, it'll make me money or it will bring me happiness. It just all in all just made sense. Something felt good about it and I trusted my gut. That's something I, I strongly believe in is to ultimately at the end of the day, trust your instincts. And I trusted it. I told myself I wouldn't question it again after that. And I haven't. So STEM historically hasn't been the most diverse of fields. So what Mm -hmm. practices do you follow to make sure that people feel included in the classroom and in the society of physics students? In terms of things that I personally practice, being on the e-board for SPS, being a minority myself, I try my hardest to make sure that folks who are in minority groups or aren't traditionally represented within the group feel like they have a voice, so to speak. I know on SPS, there's myself, one of the other guys, and then two women on the the team, on the e-board. And that was actually a pretty big deal because we rarely have any females in the club to begin with or in physics uh, to start with. That's just an issue with the STEM major. So we try to reach out to other organizations, find programs for minorities, for women in STEM, things like that. We try to reach out and work with them on those programs. So that's a a large part of what we try to do. And I I try to do similar things in my other organizations as well, just to make sure everyone's included, everyone's involved. I don't really personally think there's a sense of making anyone feel like a minority to begin with. So that's interesting. You also manage the gaming sector, which includes, for people that don't know, a lot of smaller sections for individual game. There's a part of the club that handles Super Smash, just Super Smash, another that handles just Pokemon Go, and another that just handles esports. So how do you manage a club when there's just so many moving parts that you can't possibly keep a close eye on? Now that is very difficult to do. I've managed a lot while at Seton Hall. Uh, being some of the esports teams, I was a manager for that for the last four years. And of course, like you said, gaming sector. And gaming sector has easily been the hardest in terms of moving parts to manage. Because like you said, there is a lot of moving parts. 
And the best way I have found to do that is through my eboard. And of course, I have a manager for each of the, the different sectors, hence gaming sector, within the organization, as you mentioned. And from there, I'm able to talk with them, figure out what the plan is, and then delegate work from there for each of them, as well as kind of let them run their own section and try not to step on their two toes too much. That's, that's their lane, so I'll let them run it because they know it better than I do. But I'm also a resource for them, and if they need anything, if they want to make plans for a large event, say, or something like that, that they need my help with, of course, I'm always there for them. Equally so, I try to just check in and say, hey, how's it going? What can I do? So I try to be a resource as well as an authority. That's really interesting because I know that a lot of leaders, especially younger leaders, have a hard time delegating. They think it's all on them. So in that vein, how do you work to build that trust amongst the people that brand these these smaller sectors? I personally hold the mindset that trust, yes, it has to be earned, but it should always be given initially. So I will always, if I'm in a position of authority like that, where I have to manage people, I will always give them the benefit of the doubt right out the gate, trust them to begin with. And then I'll kind of work backwards if they give me a reason not to, and it'll go from there. But until that moment comes, I give you full trust, full faith until you need my help, then I'll be there for you. And I'll continue to trust you the same as always. So you also are part of the Student Alumni Association. Part of their goal is to facilitate networking between the alumni and the current students of Seton Hall. What lessons have you got from your experiences in networking? This year specifically, I think I've created the most networks that I ever have at Seton Hall. And that largely has just come from being very active. Not in terms of like, and I always preach, be active on campus, talk to people, be very extroverted, which I'm just a naturally extroverted person. But more than just that, because I know some folks are introverted and that's okay. You have to be willing to put yourself out there in regards of, hey, there's this opportunity to go meet so-and-so or just to go to this event and watch. Say yes in a heartbeat. Always say yes, because somehow, some way, you'll meet someone there. Just in passing, you'll have a short conversation and it'll create a networking connection for you. They'll say, hey, I'm also uh, an alum, and I also was in the Student Alumni Association back in 2008. I'd love to get your information and talk more to you later. Or, you know, whatever the case may be, something like that. Definitely just put yourself out into the situations where you have the opportunity. Never pass up the opportunity. So here's kind of the million-dollar question when it comes to networking. How do you even begin the conversation to start networking? Most of the time that I've networked with anybody, it wasn't intentional. I never went up to somebody thinking, yeah, this is going to be a great network. I'm going to say hello. I'm going to give them my name. Like, never did any of that. It most often was not just, hi, is a seat available? Like, is anyone sitting here? And I'd sit down at the table or, you know, something like that. I'd sit down and say, hello, how are you? You know, this is who I am. We have our little name tags and everything. Uh, we're supposed to go out and talk within the Student Alumni Association and just say, hey, I'm Kevin Craig. It's nice to meet you. How's your day? I mean, that's, it's really just as basic as that. Or if there's an event, say something about the event. If most of these happened through happenstance, I guess, how can students create more of these lucky happenstances then? 
I wouldn't put it all to lucky happenstance. It it seems like that mostly in, in my experience, but also, like I said, every opportunity you've given, you're given, you have to just simply say yes to it, unless you literally cannot. If it's an obligation where you have to spend a ton of time, and you just can't do it. That's different. But if it's, hey, there's an event at seven o'clock, can you go? Say yes. Just say yes. Miss out on hanging out with friends for a little while, for an hour or two. Say yes and go. You'll get a great experience from that. And those experiences come when you are in several organizations that you can handle and manage with your academics. It happens when you do talk to your professors and they say, hey, you know, we're having this event this weekend. You should go. Stuff like that. So just talk to your advisors, talk to your professors. They will be your resources. So you've had some very quote unquote hands on internships at your time at Seton Hall, some of which relates literally right back to people's well-being. I'm talking about your dental assistant internship in this case. So Mm -hmm. what pressures have you encountered working in this field? Because you're kind of dealing with it's not you're not just dealing with something small, like people are literally affected by this. And how do you deal with that pressure? So that one was doubly hard because that was down in McAllen, Texas. And there, most of the folks are Mexican and from Mexico and only speak Spanish. So A, I had to kind of remember how to speak Spanish because I haven't spoken it since I was very little. And B, I also had to, of course, learn how to use all the uh, tools and utensils, et cetera. But I think the hardest thing was knowing what was a good use of my time. And I say that as in, it was difficult to know, am I doing the right thing at the right time? Because there's a patient in waiting room one, but I have to go you know, sanitize these t- uh, tools so they're able to be used in room one. Do I go check on him first and take his pulse and whatnot? Or do I finish this up, then bring it over with me and kind of do two things at once? I think that was the hardest part for me. But you have to just make a decision and follow through with it regardless of whether it's the right or wrong one you'll find that out afterwards and you'll learn from it but just make a decision stick with it be confident of course one of seton hall's values is student leadership something reflected in what you've been doing on campus since you've been here part of the society of physics students goal is to implement more environmentally friendly technology at seton hall and last month the gaming sector participated in extra life which benefits children's miracle network hospital so how do you choose which causes matter to you and how do you suggest people figure this out by themselves so i would look at what you personally value um some of my friends are very very big into the environment so they always search for the next environmental cause that they can back and help with on campus. Some are very into the homeless, so they'll go to Dove frequently and help out with things like that. You really have to just sit down and think, what am I passionate about in terms of helping out with and volunteering with? What do I care about? What has affected me? Or maybe not has even affected you personally, but something that largely has happened to you in your lifetime or to someone you know, usually that is where people's uh, you know, values come from. So you have to just sit down and think, what do I care about? So can you talk about a cause that matters to you and how you decided that it was important to you? Yeah, off campus, breast cancer awareness for me is a huge thing. I have run 
know, several charities for it before I have taken part in several others. And that was a huge thing for me because in high school, one of my close teammates, my mother had a breast cancer as well as my grandmother. Unfortunately, my teammate's mother passed away in 2016. So that's always been a huge, huge, you know, part of my life. And she was very, very close to all of us. On campus, Children's Miracle Network Hospitals for Extra Life, I've been doing it since my freshman year. Once again, this goes back to my interest in the medical field and being able to help as many people as I possibly can. So of course, children with terminal illnesses or any major surgeries that they need, anything like that, that means a lot to me. Just knowing that I was able to take part in that part of their life and help them out just that much, even if it's literally just a little bit. You've mentioned a lot throughout this interview about trusting your instincts. For someone that doesn't trust their instincts, how do you start doing that? That takes a lot of just kind of inner looking. A lot of this, like I've said, is reflection-based. You have to sit down, you have to talk to yourself. Literally, I, I talk to myself. It sounds crazy, but <laughs> I genuinely would just sit down and instead of writing on a journal, I'll just kind of check in on myself and say, hey, how are you? So that helps in terms of having internal confidence. As far as, do I feel like I'm making the right decision? Should I do that? Should I do this? I think it's a matter of, like I said, be okay with making the wrong choice. I make the wrong decision every day of my life for one thing or another. We all do. It's okay. It's natural. It's going to happen. As long as you make that decision, you stick with it, you hold to your guns and follow through. You did the right thing in some regard because you still trusted yourself and you still followed your own instinct in the end of the day. If you're obviously doing something very bad, that's different. But if it wasn't anything detrimental, and even if it was, you learn from it. You say, okay, I made this choice. It wasn't the right one. Why wasn't it? And you look at it from very neutralized and not beat yourself up over it or overly praise yourself either. You say, yeah, that's a good thing. Or all right, that wasn't so good. What can I learn from it? So another theme other than trusting your instincts has been how important healthcare is to you. Can you talk about where that started? So my whole family largely is, is involved in medicine, be it dental or hospital-based, uh, so healthcare-based. That was a large part. I think the biggest part was my father, though. I grew up, he being very busy all the time, working uh, as a doctor, as a physician, and I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him when I was younger. He was in his fellowship at the time, so he would literally read to me his medical textbooks as bedtime stories. Like he didn't have time. He had to study. So he killed two birds with one stone. And later on, as I got older, he got me a computer. He worked from home on occasions when he was on call because he was a radiologist. Um, so he could read x-rays and whatnot from home. So he got me a computer, put it down right next to his workstation. And we'd spend time together on the weekends that way when traditionally he couldn't, you know, get away from work. I'd just be next to him. We'd talk about his work. We'd talk about the video games. So that works twofold. I grew a passion for video games from that, and I grew a passion for medicine and healthcare. Thank you again for joining me on this podcast. We've gotten, we like did a lot of fun questions today. I do have two sort of last questions for you, and that is, what books, podcasts, or other media do you recommend in order to become a better leader? And what thought leaders do you follow in social media or the news? In terms of, so admittedly, I'm not a huge reader. But I also personally don't really believe in 
you can learn to lead by reading. It's a good idea. It gets you started. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying don't read. Don't you know follow leaders like that. It's a great, great example. I always strongly believe in uh, practice over anything else. So that, that's what I would say, because I don't really have any other recommendations in terms of podcasts or books. So I just say, try your best to practice it on a daily basis, even in the small things. And are there any thought leaders that you follow on social media or do oh. you just blaze your own path? Like I said, I, that kind of follows the same thing with the, the books. I primarily just try to blaze my own path. But if anything, I would say, I'm also not on social media anymore, but I would say to look to the leaders that you have on a daily basis. You know, I've talked about your professors, your advisors, even, you know, family, friends, anyone that you might know, look to them as and look at their leadership on the minor things. Because leadership isn't this huge thing of I lead this organization, I'm this, that, or the other. Leadership is about what can you do in the small actions? Because those will build up to the larger decision. If you can lead your friends to a victory in a, a, an intramural game, you led them, that's leadership still. You led a group project, that's still leadership. All these small decisions will lead up to building you as a great leader. Okay, thanks for joining me. That's all the time that we have. And for our listeners, we'll see you next week. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU for allowing us to use their facilities and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership on Instagram at Pasita Leaders and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.